Haggai chapter 1, and, and the sermon is the beginning of Haggai chapter 2. It's going to be based on the first verses of Haggai chapter 2, but we're going to start in Haggai 1, and I'll read through to the beginning of Haggai 2. And the sermon is on the house of the Lord. So Haggai 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you bought it, brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and on the grain, new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Lord, bless your word here. Help us to remember Haggai as we go about rebuilding the spiritual temple of which we are living stones. Help us to realize in what sorry state it's in and help us to, to look, to look to the, the temple that is in ruins, to see how it doesn't resemble its former glory, to see how far it's fallen. But help us not to be cast down. Help us not to be despondent and depressed as a result, but rather, Lord, give us hope in the promises. Give us trust that you've called us to rebuilding, to the work of rebuilding the temple. So give us um, the power and thank you for the spirit. We don't work in our own flesh and blood, but we work in the power of the spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. So last time, we covered 
Haggai chapter 1. And one of the main points I made, and I, I referenced a number of different scriptures, um, including in Hebrews and Peter, where we see that the way the New Testament looks back at the, the Old Testament temple is not, the New Testament doesn't look forward to a rebuilding of a physical temple. The Old Testament, or the New Testament, looks back to the Old Testament and the temple in the Old Testament and sees it as a type and as a symbol, as an external pointer pointing forward to Christ. And of course, we saw that Christ uh, told the Jews that his body would be, or the, the, temp, he would, the temple would be destroyed and he would rebuild it in three days. And of course, they were, um, thought he was off his rocker because you can't rebuild the temple in three days, but he was talking about his body. And so that's the way in which the New Testament interprets this Old Testament. Uh, the Old Testament reality of the temple, the temporal temple, is as a spiritual temple uh, of which we are all living stones, Christ being the head and chief cornerstone of the temple. So we are built up in Christ, and in, a set, in Christ is the temple. We are members of his body and living stones. So that's, that's the culmination. And some would call that replacement theology, but it's only replacement if... That's not what the Old Testament intended all along. If that's not what God, in giving us the Old Testament, in giving the picture of the physical temple, intended all along, but we see in the writers of the New Testament but that this, rather than being a replacement or a downgrade, is the ultimate culmination of everything that we see in the Old Testament. So when you read, when I read the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, and you read these passages about the sacrifices and the temple and the priesthood and the, the washings and all these type of things, we need to be thinking about their spiritual fulfillment in Christ. And if you have any, if you struggle with that, the New Testament teaches throughout it about the fulfillment. But specifically, if you really struggle with seeing that and you're just not getting anything out of the Old Testament, read the book of Hebrews. Study the book of Hebrews and you're going to see point by point by point by point how each of those things was refill, fulfilled in Christ and in the New Testament. So we saw that in the first chapter. And we walked away hopefully with, the, with that in mind, the fact that the temple now is the spiritual temple, but that this passage, this chapter applies to us today. It was written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world have come. So when we read this passage, we're, we're to learn that when we see the state of the church, the body of Christ, the visible church and, and true worship, the lifting up of God's word, the preaching of the word. When we see what sorry state it's in, we, we see that um, pulpits are silent. Pulpits are literally uttering foolishness. If you listen to a lot of the most pop, popular pulpits in the land that are being televised and broadcast and people are looking up to you as if they're a great thing, literally from a biblical standpoint, Foolish babble is coming and being uttered from many pulpits across the country right now. There's very, very little in the way. Now, I don't want to downplay because God still has a remnant. There's still always the preaching of the word. But there's very little in the way of expository, careful, thoughtful preaching and comparing of scripture with, with scripture. and Proclaiming authoritatively to our culture, to our time, and to the people, and to the church, the truths of God's word in such a way that, that doesn't, isn't geared towards just tickling ears, isn't geared towards avoiding sensitive topics, isn't geared towards going along with whatever the culture says today. When we see the state of the church, it's in a very sorry condition today. Um, but Haggai is a, an important first, the, the first chapter and all of Haggai, there's only two chapters, is extremely important for us to be thinking that our life must be about the work of rebuilding the temple. And of course, they made excuses as to why they lived in houses and the house of God was in ruins. And we talked about how that shouldn't be the case. We, we should put the rebuilding of the temple, and for us, the spiritual temple, as they should have the physical temple, even alongside or before the rebuilding of our own houses and our own um, welfare. So, for example, here in verse 4, he says, Haggai the prophet says, By the word of the Lord, 
Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin, ruins? So for us to just live our life, to live the American life, to work, maybe someday retire and then die without the primacy, the central concern of our life being the rebuilding of the temple and the service of God and, and that his glory is in the gutter in our country right now, that his his name has gone by the wayside, that his word is not being preached, that his word is not being proclaimed, um, that error abounds. For us to not make that a central concern of our life is, is sinful for us and a misuse of our life as, as Christians. So we saw, um, we saw that if the house of the Lord is in ruins, God through the prophet reveals that your life is going your life is going to be in ruins the the state of the nation ultimately will be in ruins um, and we see the judgments that he sets forward here and to recap those judgments the prophet calls them to consider their ways he says you have sown much and harvested little now there are are, are several types of judgments here one judgment is that God, often in history, when, when, the, when his people especially, but when people are rebellious, God will actually curse the produce of their fields. They will sow much, and the crops will be meager. Now, you can take that in a literal way, and I think we should, but also in a, in a, in a not-so-literal way. Uh, it has more uh, meta, uh, metaphorical applications. But they, they, they sow... And they reap little. So God will actually curse the fruit of the field and, and the fruit of our efforts as a people, as individuals, because of our neglect of his temple. There, there's a second type of, type of curse, though, that's almost more frustrating. And that is that you eat, but you, have never, you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. So this is, in many ways, where we can see the curse that has already started to come across upon our country in that we we live a pretty historically lavish lifestyle yet we're a very discontent troubled people and we're not we're not content with what with what we have we eat but we don't have our fill we 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 enjoy luxuries that men and women in history would have given so much for and would have loved to have had but we were very upset frustrated we're not able to enjoy the good things that God has even blessed us with. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And then there's a third type of judgment. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Now this one's the type of, this is a very frustrating, maybe even the most frustrating, where you bring your, the, the, he's describing bringing the wages in, you put it in your, you know, they probably had a purse, it wasn't like a man, you know, it was a little bit different thing back then put it in your wallet whatever the case is you stick the paycheck in your wallet your bank account and it just dissipates and you see nothing out of it you see nothing out of it you go and you go and you go and you may not even be able to point your finger at where does it all go and god can 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 curse in all three ways he can curse through much effort little productivity when you do get stuff you're not able to enjoy it and when you do get stuff he blows on it and it disappears and it's gone. And you wonder, where did it go? So we, ha- we, can, we can look to ourselves and look at these, these curses and look at our land and look at these curses. Um, true worship is not just going through and doing the things, but it's also giving primacy. We saw that, that they were... They agreed that the, the temple should be rebuilt, but they just weren't ready for it. It wasn't time for it. They made excuses, and God says, no, build my temple first. So we should prioritize. We talked about the first, the first of our week, the first of our day, the first. Give God the best. Don't, don't think, maybe, you know, maybe if I have some time at the end of the day, I'm going to read the Bible. Maybe if I have some time at the end of the day, I'll pray. That's, God wants the best. He wants the first and the best. He doesn't want the leftovers and the crumbs from our table. 
The sincerity of our hearts and our, and our religion is demonstrated by the preeminence we give to God's house. Um, so do we value corporate worship? Do we value the work of the church? Do we value um, the things of the spiritual house of God? And do we, do we give this preeminence? Every Christian everywhere is to be about the work of building up God's house. Not for a couple of years, but for his whole life. Every Christian everywhere is to, to be constantly about the work of building up God's house. And we do that through our, our, we can do that through our jobs and through what we do and keeping the home and all those type of things. But that's, our, that's, what, we're, that's what our life is, is building up God's house. Uh, we see here in the first chapter of Haggai that despising the mirror because the temple in and of itself was, was nothing, but it was a mirror of God's glory. And to despise the, the, the mirror of his glory was to despise his glory. So, for example, I can say, I love God. Oh, glorify God. Praise God. But it, then if I came up and I'm, you know, kind of just whatever about the Lord's table, haphazard, oh, yeah, bread and wine, okay, whatever. Close, I, I, while the preaching is going on, while the... the the, the lesson is being taught about the table. And while this is going on, I'm just kind of closing my ears. I'm thinking about what I'm going to do later today or tomorrow. Um, I'm zoning out. I can say at that point, oh, I love God. Praise God. But our love for God and our faith is demonstrated in how seriously we take the things of God. So if we take... For somebody to say out on one side of their mouth and then to act in such a way that these things aren't important and to not give them weight. For you kids to just zone out on a Sunday because, oh, well, it's hard to understand or those type of things. I'm not going to try. Our faith, our religion is demonstrated how seriously we take the things of God. There is no greater or more important, no more pressing project in our life than the rebuilding of God's church. Another way of putting it is the person who is a quote-unquote good Christian but doesn't care about the state of the church, doesn't care about the state of worship, doesn't care about the state of preaching, doesn't care about the fact that, that God's house is in ruins, is ultimately not a good Christian. Part and parcel of being a good Christian is caring about the spiritual temple of God. And the fact that the New Testament makes it clear that we are, I mean, think about, just, just think about this metaphor for a second. Think about going to Jerusalem back on the temple. Even today, you can go to the, the outer, the Wailing Wall, which is not part of the temple per se. But there's those stones you've seen the pictures of. But back in the day, you could have gone and felt and picture yourself feeling the stones of the temple. Feel your, picture yourself touching those stones of that temple and seeing this, this beautiful building built up of all these stones and then think about that that's who we are in Christ but for something much more grand, something much more glorious and something much more beautiful. And the fact that we are living stones tells us the point and purpose of our life. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forevermore. We can't, you can't be a Christian and separate yourself from that for a moment. Our Life is as living stones of the temple that is being built up in Christ, in, in Christ Jesus. And to emphasize the, just the centrality, because so often what happens is our faith becomes a peripheral thing. Our faith by default becomes something out of sight, out of mind until, oh, okay, well, yeah, I'll do this, I'll do this, I'll do this. But the faith becomes far out of mind. And so this is the centrality, and this is from Stephen Lawson in his book um, on Behold His Glory. He says, this must be the chief pursuit of our lives today. God must be the greatest priority in our life. We must seek to know more of his glory with everything in our being. Every decision we make must have God as our primary concern. So if you bought the lie, and this is the lie today that, yeah, I'm a Christian, but man, I I don't want to be a fanatic about it. I don't want to be overly zealous about it. I don't want to... Yeah, that's great and all, but it doesn't apply here. Every decision we make must have God as our primary concern. Wherever we'll most magnify God must be our highest priority. 
We must not look for what is easiest in life. We must not choose the path of least resistance. Neither must we follow the crowd for fame and fortune. We must not pursue what looks the most appealing. Instead, we must prioritize the glory of God in all that we do. And that was what was in shambles. And that day was the, the glory of God was in, was in shambles. It was a laughing stock of the people that would come by and see what was supposed to be the glory of God and uh, his reflection. And so we must be about um, prioritize the glory of God in all that we do. Whatever will most honor God is the path we must choose. Every, every decision we make, we should have this question. What's going to honor God the most? All right, so starting at the end of the chapter, verse 12, we see that they, they, heard the, they realized, they heard, and the Spirit worked. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the, word the, as the Lord their God had sent him. So now keep in mind, when the prophets are speaking, it's their voice, but it's God's message. And the same can be said for those who preach. When you preach, and I'm not just saying uh, a pastor. If you go out, if we're out in front of uh, Planned Parenthood, or we're out on a street corner, or you're in a situation where you have the opportunity before men to address and and to stand up and to proclaim, I think all of us should should be ready to give the gospel. Um when, when you actually give the word of God and you speak the words of God, there's a joining of your words with God's and it's as if God is speaking. So when I preach and I'm preaching actually scriptural preaching and teaching, God is speaking through that scriptural preaching and teaching. Of course, you have to discern, is that the case? But to the extent that what I say lines up with scripture, it is God himself as if God is speaking uh, through the word that's being proclaimed. As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. So we talked about fear earlier, but they, they, they had a healthy uh, respect and fear. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. That presence of God and the fact that here they were, they realized that they had been making the grave mistake of putting God's house and his glory and by it had shown that their faith was really on the back burner. And so they repent of that. They turn. They, they, they listen to the words of the prophets. And the prophet gives them the reassurance. I am with you, declares the Lord. And we can, we can take that same reassurance. So if we're guilty of the same things, we can take the words that Haggai gave then. And we can apply them to ourselves. In the work of rebuilding a spiritual temple, God says, I am with you. He's saying this to you today, to me. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. Now, is the fact that we respond to this message that's, that we're hearing from Haggai, the fact that they responded to that message, is it because they were good people? Is it because they just had a really good heart? Um, they, they, they really weren't bad people like other people? Ultimately, we see the, 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 the all glory goes to God and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. So God, God, the spirit stirred up the leaders of the people, the governor and the high priest and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. So it was God, the Holy Spirit in uh, working and stirring up and, and God gets all the glory for this type of revival. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now, there was work involved, and it obviously was very big work. And that's probably why they put it to the back burner, because when you see something of that size and such disrepair and just ruins, you know, it's all of us put those projects off. And God basically, through Haggai, says, don't put my project off. You can you put other projects off, but don't put my project off. Um, but they worked. On the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. Chapter 2. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. And you have to love that God is not just a God who exists, 
He's a God who speaks. A lot of people will, will subscribe to a God who exists. Will agree that there is a God that exists. Oh yeah, I, I know that everything had to be created. A lot of non-Christians, people you talk to, who have some, some form of belief in a God, will believe that there's actually a God who had to have created things. Um, what the real stumbling stone for most people, in quote-unquote religious people that aren't biblically religious, is the God who speaks, the God who actually condescends to give his word to humanity. And the fence, of course, is that when God does that, he steps in our sin, he steps in our pride, he calls us to repentance, he calls us to humility, and he doesn't allow us to do the things we want. So too often people are okay with a God who is but is not a speaking God, yet we see in Scripture that we're blessed with a speaking God. He doesn't, he communicates to man, he gives us what we need, and here he's giving them step by step through the prophet the instruction. And he's doing the same to us today as well through the words of Haggai. Um, he says, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnants of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw the house in its former glory? Now the conjecture is that there was a generation of people who did remember what the temple looked like, and the temple no longer looked anything close to what it looked like before because now it's in ruins. And the temple prior to that had been beautiful, had been ornate, had been covered in, in gems and gold and cedar. It had been a sight to behold. It was the glory of, of Jerusalem and the nation. And it, was, it demonstrated the, God, the glory of God perfectly. And so here they're called to this work. Don't you think there would be a little bit of despair in, in their minds over the possibility of that task of how can we, with the limited resources we have, really do justice to this building? And that's a legitimate thought. But as Calvin said in commenting on this, Satan can use those type of thoughts to keep us from the work. Satan can, Satan can take us today and say, well, man, there's some golden ages in church history. Man, we're so far. Look at, look at how far we've gone. There's just no use. There's no hope. There's no, there's no point to it. How could, how, could, how could the work ever be done? And so what we're about to uh, go through is God addressing this uh, concern, this point of frustration, this point of despair, what very well could have just shut, caused them to give up on the project, um, humanly speaking. How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? So there was nothing... Nothing to behold. There was not. It was. It was a. It was. It was, in a sense, having a temple in disrepair like that was was almost more of a, a negative than a positive because it pointed to the former glory and it showed, the power of the nations who had destroyed it. Um, it was the type of thing that they didn't even want to look at. Yet now be strong. So God calls them to strength. He specifically says. Oh, now, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Now, notice how he's, he's addressing the leader of the people of the governor, civil leader. And then he says, be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak. So he's, God's giving this message to, specifically to the, the civil leader, the governor, the, the uh, religious leader, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. So then he addresses the people and calls them to strength. And in tough times where the church is in disrepair, it, it requires strength in the part of uh, biblical godly leaders. It, for somebody to go in and advocate biblical justice in the civil realm today is basically like committing um, social suicide. For somebody to go and, and stand up for the unborn or to go and advocate justice or to fight against corruption in government is basically equivalent to putting your, your, your social life, to terminating your social life. I mean, you're not going to get esteem from anybody, even Christians. It's just going to be an uphill battle. And so anyone who is involved in the political scene has to be strong. The same thing, though, goes in the, in the realm of the church because people would rather someone who preaches it tickles ears than someone who proclaims 
the hard truths of God's word. Somebody would rather somebody say, hey, you're good where you're at. Just do your thing. Just come here, um, participate, and you're good. Then somebody who says, hey, we all need to do something. We all need to work. Nobody wants to be called to work. Nobody wants to be called to, to repentance. Nobody wants to, to hear you're wrong and you need to change. But that's what faithful preaching looks like. And so here he calls Jehozadak. And the people also need to be called because it's one thing if the, if the leaders of the church and state are godly. But oftentimes the people are corrupt and immoral and wicked and, and need to be called. And, and also have a, a quitter mindset and are willing to quit easily. Maybe they'll put a little effort in and quit. But he says, be strong. All you people land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. The, the biblical call for the rest of my life, for the rest of your life, is hard work. It's hard work to be about the business of rebuilding the temple. It's hard work. Pretty much everything God calls us to is hard work. We see that even in the command to work six days and on the seventh to rest. That the Christian, the, the biblical life is about hard work. And sure, there was feasts, and there was times of, of feasting and rest, but there was a lot of hard work. But work, for I am with you. That's our motivation, that's our comfort, that's in our encouragement, and that should motivate us, is that God is, we're not working alone, God is with us, working with us, giving us strength, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. So it's interesting, here 800 years, probably roughly, something like that, after the exodus, it's, it's, we think of the Old Testament as just one monolithic, like one close time period, but it's spread out quite a while. So here the prophet brings them back to a covenant made back around the time of the Exodus. And with our promises, our pledges, our resolutions, our pledges and resolutions and our covenants tend to lose strength over time. So how many times have you committed to something that you've fallen off and, and later just get given up on. I can think back to so many things that I've set out and I've resolved to do, and maybe I, I've even verbally said, I'm going to do this. Um, but human commitment tends to lose force and power over time. When we make a covenant, when we make a pledge or a promise, it tends to become more and more neglected and go by the wayside. Think about what happens with people making resolutions or, you know, like, I'm going to do this. By God's grace, I'm going to do this. And, you know, 2024, I'm going to change the, the world, do this, 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 this. I'm going to be, and, and we can be actually foolish in making promises we can't keep because we tend to be very fickle and careless when it comes to our promises. But the reason the prophet can peel back to a promise made at 800 years prior as if it has binding effect and should strike them with its, with its, um, the reality of it should strike them, is because God is stable, God is consistent, God does not change, and so a promise he made 800 years ago is as good as new. There's nothing, there's nothing that's been diminished about his promise. So when we look back at the Old Testament, we see the promise back in the book of Genesis that he'd send a redeemer. We see that he fulfilled thousands of years later. When we see promises um, after the flood that he gives a rainbow and that he won't destroy the world again by, by water, that promise is good until the end of history. It's good. The promises of God, you can hang your hat on. Those same promises, that covenant framework that he established in the Old Testament thousands of years ago is as real to us as it was to them in Haggai's day and was when it was first given. And so those, com- those covenants are good and stand fast. And we, they're, they're, they, we rest on those covenants. We rest on those promises. My spirit remains in your midst. So they were promised at that time back in Egypt. And then now he's reaffirming that the, it, they don't fight in their own flesh. They don't go by themselves. But the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is in, their, in, the, is in the middle of them. Fear not. What do we tend to do when we're, we're given a task like that, when we're given something that's seemingly impossible? We fear, we fret, and it leads us to give up. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth 
and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house should be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So, fear not for thus, says the Lord of hosts. Now, there is a partial, there's a comfort to them in the words he's about to say. This is a a prophetic passage. There's a comfort to them. But the way we have to understand this prophecy that Haggai gives is that the, the real fulfillment was not in the rebuilt temple that they built then. But we know from the New Testament, we know from the wording, the real fulfillment is with the coming of Christ. Um, this, this is quoted in Hebrews, and I'll read that in a second. In the language in opening, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, it's easy to gloss over, but yet once more in that language points to a final Yet once again, the last time, only one time more, is the way that language reads, um, God will do this. And so he's contrasting what happened in, in Egypt with the future. And there, this, this will be the once and final shaking for all of all nations. So let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Chapter 12. Verse 26, Hebrews 12, 26, and we'll see the New Testament quotation of this passage. When you read the Bible, can I encourage you, don't read it linearly. Don't read, even if you read from cover to cover, don't read from cover to cover. Look at those cross-references, any good Bible is going to have them. Take some time to tie old and new and to see the new fulfill the old and the old shadow pre-shadow the new. Um, if Hebrews 12, 26. Because otherwise you'll just miss so much. Otherwise you'll, you'll go through the whole New Testament, for example, and you'll miss the fact that so much of the, the New Testament is quotations or allusions. Um, if you're not paying attention to that, you're going to miss the richness. And when you go back to these references, you're going to actually see more information, more background, more context to the use in the New Testament. Hebrews 12. Yes. And yes, I'm asking everybody to be a scholar of their Bible. And that's not too much to ask. And I should be able to ask that. And that's what God asks of you. Hebrews 12, 26. It's doable. I'm going to back up to 25. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. So it's going back to Mount Sinai. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he is promised. So that was the first event, was the shaking of the earth at Sinai. And now he quotes Haggai chapter 2. Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaking. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. So, for us to be faithful in the work of spiritual temple rebuilding... In our day, we need to understand the time that we live in and what that looks like. And otherwise, we're going to be discouraged like they were then because they were in a tumultuous time period. Um, and too often, we are newspaper exegetes. We, act, we, we think that the latest headline somehow changes the promise of God instead of keeping our hand on the wheel, slow and steady, plowing ahead at the work of God. We keep our finger up. We lick our finger and we put it up to the wind constantly and we see which way the wind is blowing and then we interpret the Bible in such a way. Instead of that, we need to be um, resolute and realize that we're in a time of shaking. And that's the main thing I want to give to you guys is that we are in a time of shaking like in their day. 
not pass Haggai, which is a little bit hard to do. Um, so what is this shaking? So there's, he, Haggai looks forward to a final shaking of all things. Now, there was a partial fulfillment, and sometimes prophecy does this, where it, it's a telescoping fulfillment. So effectively, he's encouraging them that he will loosen from the nations and shake the nations in such a way that pour, will pour in the resources they need for the finishing of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple in their day, back at Haggai, Haggai chapter 2. But he points forward to a future day, and Hebrews interprets it this way, when there's a final shaking of all things, and that, so that only that which is unshakable will remain. Specifically, a shaking of uh, both heavens and earth, and a shaking of the nations. So this is, think of this in kingdom language, and you don't have to take my word for it. Go back to Hebrews 12. Um, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So it's contrasting the shakable kingdoms with the unshakable kingdom, which is God's kingdom. So what we live in is a time in which the kingdom of God, as Christ said, has come upon you. We live in a time where the kingdom is now, but not yet. It's now, inaugurated at the cross, unfolding, and will be um, fully fulfilled, and his kingdom will reign preeminent. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord at the end of history. So we live in this interim, this time of, of shaking, and, and the uh, the best way to picture that is two lines that overlap. We live in a time where the cross starts this, the age to come. The fall starts the age that we're in now, and that age was dealt a mortal blow at the, at the coming of Christ on the cross, but will be fully put under the feet of Christ and, and vanish away at a second coming. So we live in this time period where there's the unshakable kingdom of, of Christ has been inaugurated in his overall things, Yet the shakable kingdom of human nation, uh, of human nature, nations, and fallen man is still is still has the ascendancy, um, at least practically speaking. And so we live in a time that's between two kingdoms, the shakable the shakable kingdoms and the unshakable. And Haggai points forward to this, and understanding that the coming of Christ was described as a cleansing fire a judgment event um, that the time we are in is like a winnowing process leading up to the final winnowing that the the analogy of silver and metals being purified through fire so when we think about that ju this judgment event that we're living through we think about a purifying process God is purifying and shaking out and shaking the shakeable so that the unshakable will remain yet in doing so while that may shake our confidence at times, above the shaking of human events and nations and rising and falls of nations since the coming of Christ is the unshakable kingdom of God, which is established securely in heaven and our, our citizenship and our, we are seated with him in heavenly places. So this is unshakable. So we are citizens of an unshakable kingdom that is becoming manifest in this earth. And as such, we can deal with the shakable events and tumultuous times and problems and ups and downs of the, the spiritual temple as it's being built. But we can have confidence that Christ is building that temple, that he is building up that house, that he is working through the preaching of his word to equip saints for the work of the ministry and living stones. So Christ is about that business. And so when we're in a point where the temple seems to be in disrepair, we can look up and see that Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father, reigning and we can pl plug ahead with the, the hard work of rebuilding, the hard work of um, kingdom service, of kingdom life. I love what one of the commentators said. He said that in commenting on Hebrews 12 here, he said that the, the nations of this world in this time period are the scaffolding that Christ erect, erects upon which he builds his kingdom. And when they, when they serve his usefulness, they are destroyed. 
So God is working through the scaffolding that he's erected of these nations to think about the rise of the British Empire and how that led to the pouring in of, of millions of, of believers into the kingdom of Christ all over the world and global, the gospel going into lands that it never had before. And the kingdom of Britain, the United Kingdom, will wax and wane, but the kingdom of Christ is, is preeminent and cannot fail despite our human perception at the moment. One, uh, one commentator, actually this was Calvin, said, we are not to judge what God has previously said of redemption by, our pre- by present appearances. We are not to judge what God has said of the truth of, of the matter is by present appearances. What God has promised, we are not to judge by present appearances. And of course we see these... Uh, this concept, not just in Haggai and then quoted in Hebrews, but you see it elsewhere. Isaiah 2.2, and I will shake all nations, and so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. So when we see the tumultuousness, Christ, through the tumult of the nations, through the rise and fall, through the, the seemingly cataclysmic events that overthrow, seemingly overthrow the church of God, Christ is actually bringing in the treasure of all nations in a, in a perfect way that only he can see. And filling his house with glory. And he will finish that work. Revelation 21-22. We see the fulfillment. You guys can turn to Revelation 21-22. I'll end with this passage. And all this is to give comfort to saints who live in the time of shaking. Haggai is giving... Comfort to saints who live in a time of shaking, who have been called to tough work in the midst of a time of shaking. Hebrews repeats that, and it gives encouragement and comfort to us as saints who are called to a tough business of rebuilding the spiritual temple in a time of shaking. Um, Revelation twenty one twenty two shows us the grand finale of this beautiful work of the nations pouring in. Twenty one twenty two. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And that just dovetails so perfectly with what I, all the other things that the New Testament teaches about what the temple foreshadowed. That the temple was not the as beautiful as the temple was, as glorious as the temple was, and it did for a time set forward his glory. It was not endpoint of the temple. The temple pointed forward to the real temple. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light, and its lamb, lamp is the Lamb. Now, various people take revelation, revelation in various, what you might call hyper-literal, not-so-hyper-literal, and really not-so-hyper-literal ways. And I think there's room for discussion. There's a reason why Good men disagree on the book of Revelation. But regardless of whether there actually is um, the sun still shining and the moon still shining, because that very well could be figurative here, regardless of, of the, liter- the quote-unquote literalness of that wording, what we do know is this, that the glory of God will shine and light the land and that... His glory, the end point of history, will manifest itself and overtake the whole world to the point that there's no sin, there's no darkness, but only light. 24 by its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So the, the, there will be an openness with the temple, we're about to see that, to the point that there's the, the temple is God and the Lamb, and there's, a, there's no barriers, there's no impediments. The nations will flow in and out and, and eat of the tree of life. 25, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So there's no shutting of the gates, there's no need for gates. They will bring into, the, into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So we see the fullness of God is, is working to bring about 
and bring in a vast multitude of all people from all nations and tribes and tongues into his kingdom with all of their unique benefits and privileges and all the goodness that they bring. God will cause that to flow into the, spirit, the, the, the final world. But nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. So that would be the ultimate rest that we can look forward to enjoying someday. Because we fight with sin, and as comfortable as we may get with our spiritual growth, that's dangerous because the minute we are comfortable, we become prideful, or we become neglectful, and we get overtaken by sin. But think about not having to worry about being overtaken by sin. Think about never having to worry about your tongue going astray. Think about never having to worry about getting upset or frustrated or say, do, the, do or say the wrong thing. That's the rest that we'll enter into. Um, and there will be no wickedness, no evil, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's pray. Lord, we just um, help us to be comforted as the people of Haggai's day were comforted. They saw seemingly it was an impossible task. They were discouraged even after they were committed to perform it. It seemed like there was no way that they could bring back that temple to its former glory. And help us to not judge by sight. Help us to work. And to know that we live in a, shakeable, a shaking time period. But that shaking isn't the shaking of Satan. It's not the shaking of evil rulers. It's not the, the shaking of hidden powers or principalities. The shaking is your shaking. You are actively shaking the world. And you have been since, the, from, since your son's um, death, burial, and resurrection. You've, you've been shaking this earth so that only that which is unshakable will eventually remain. So just help us to have confidence that we may get caught in the crosshairs. We may get caught in, in our life may end even in that shaking. Our specific little period of time that we're on this earth may not be as fruitful in that shaking as we'd hope. But the confidence and the comfort in our work that you give us and we thank you for is that the work is sure in you. The, the work is, is, is blessed by you and cannot fail if it's done for you and your glory. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.